This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. You guys hear me talk about this all the time, and I absolutely love their product, so I want you to know about Duke Tig Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you need a notebook that is already pre-lined, that you can just jump right in, plan a training session, take notes during a match, Duke Tig Brand has got you covered. And guess what? They also have waterproof products. And if you work in the coaching world, you know how unpredictable the weather can be from week to week, match to match, training session to training session. They also have apparel too. So I can save you 10% today by going to checkout at duketigbrand.com and use the promo code BROADWATER19, B-R-O-A-D-W-A-T-E-R-1-9 at checkout. duketigbrand.com, plan to be great. Hola, mi amigos y amigas, and welcome into episode six of season three of the On the Touchline podcast. In this episode, Aaron Rodgers and I talk to Lee Dunn. Lee is a coach, he's an administrator, and he is also a fellow soccer podcaster. He is the host of the Heads and Volleys podcast. He resides in the San Francisco Bay Area and immigrated to the States a number of years ago from England. And he shares his journey um, of what brought him to the U.S. and what his football experience has been like. More on Lee in just a sec. Did you know that this podcast also has a video version for many of the episodes in season three? I've included a link in the show notes where you can go to the On The Touchline YouTube channel and view video footage from most of the episodes that have been published thus far here in season three. If you do prefer the good old fashioned podcast version only, this podcast is available on all major podcasting platforms. So whatever it might be, make sure that you subscribe to the show on your favorite platform. That way, you never miss a new episode on most Wednesdays and Saturdays. And of course, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, it really does mean a lot when you leave a five-star rating and a review for the show. That way, when people search soccer podcast or football podcast, that this podcast will be one of the ones that they immediately find um, during their search. And of course, you can connect with Aaron and I at any time. And I'm at Soccer Coach JB, and he is at Ohio Soccer Coach on Twitter and Instagram for both of those for us. I love bringing guests on that grew up in a very football rich environment and a football rich culture where um, young people were playing the game um, often friends, um, during school, in the park, wherever it may be. And Lee grew up in that environment in England. And there's a phrase that Lee talks about, about football being constant in this particular episode. And that here in the States, we have this version where a player may train an hour and a half, maybe three hours a week, maybe more. But in many cases, and especially for our young players, a lot of them leave training and they never touch 
a soccer ball when they're home. Um, the only time that they're actually on a soccer ball is for those hour and a half or three hours per week. And that Lee believes, and I believe too, and I think Aaron believes this, that football needs to be constant. It needs to be a lifestyle. It needs to be something that is fully integrated into a young player's life, that they bring a football to school. They're doing things at home with parents and friends and family members. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to only be with a coach. So I love that Lee talks about that in this particular episode. And Lee also talks about just being creative as a kid when it comes to creating games and always finding a way to incorporate the game into virtually everything he did uh, as a young player. So I've included information on how you can connect with Lee and his podcast in the show notes. So while you're there looking for the YouTube channel, be sure to give that a look as well. Really enjoyed this conversation, guys. Thank you so much for listening to episode six of season three with our guest, Lee Dunn. Lee Dunn, thank you so much for coming on the the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast and, and joining Aaron and I. And, um, you know, I, I tell this story, I feel like at the beginning of every podcast, but, you know, thank God for the power of social media and that um, have gotten turned on to your work and, you know, your podcast and um, loved, you know, the different times you put out questions to coaches and you have video footage and really sort of next level stuff that challenges all of us as coaches to, you know, think differently, technically, tactically, psychologically, um, physically about the game. And I, I love that. And, um, you know, I, I love bringing guests on or we love bringing guests on that continue to just shed light on this great profession that we have. And we're so fortunate to be a part of, um, for folks who don't know you, Lee, um, tell the audience a little bit about your background and, and who you are and where you're from, and, um, and we'll start there. Sure. So uh, I really appreciate this. It's it's super interesting to be on the other end of being interviewed for once, which is which I think is it's almost nerve wracking to to be on this side of oh my goodness, what question is going to come next, or or what's expected of me. But my name is Lee Dunn. I of course, as you can hear from the UK, lived in the US almost ten years, always on fortunately on the West Coast. My wife and I live in Napa, California, and I work right now in San Francisco. So I work for a youth soccer league, and then I work for a youth club too. So coaching in the evening and working in an office during the day. Um, unfortunately, I am not able to be on the field every day. And the I think the role of coaching within the US makes it it's difficult that many people want to make a career out of it. But there is that required administrative side of things too. So that's kind of why I have as most people will probably have some kind of administrative or some sort of director role. And that's what I found myself in. And I've actually found myself being pretty good at it. So it tends to detract from the actually being on the field stuff. And it's kind of led me down this road of working with my podcast, with my website, with my blog, and realizing that I spend so much time within the game, it might be time to give a little bit back. And as you mentioned there, Jason, the the idea of this practice coaching hashtag and just seeing things that I think are worth a discussion. 
And I think the value in them is that it doesn't tell you that you are wrong or you're right, or you know the right way or the best way or the clock way. It's really, this is what I see. What do you see? Because in an educational environment, which I think we all are in, we're out there educating players every day. So why are we not doing the same thing? And that's really kind of where my passion has taken me lately, that I love being on the field with the kids and I love challenging them in game environments and in practice. But actually the people that are really making the difference, I think are the people that we connect with on Twitter and through our podcasts. And if we can just encourage them in, in a gentle way to be open-minded or to just to, just to think a little bit differently or to at least have another consideration, then I think we're doing our job. And that's really kind of what my pathway has taken me into, if you like, that I want to challenge people. And it's really cool that if no one ever knows my name, but they know my hashtags or they know my podcast, then that's fantastic because really that's what it's about. It's just encouraging these people to, to think a little differently and especially tying in experienced people with not so experienced people or younger coaches or coaches that has always been in the same environment. I think it's really valuable to, to, to put these worlds together and having gone through coaching licenses recently, you, you meet people from all over the world that are all predominantly coaching in the USA and, they're typically all on their own little islands. They have their own teams or their own club and they're in their own space. But when you sit and you have a beer with someone or you sit in coffee or dinner or whatever you have with them and you start moving the salt shaker around and you start talking about, well, what if this or what about here? And I guess that's my, my dream is that people will listen to my cards, read my tweets, read my hashtag, and then reach out to somebody else and say, what do you think? And then the conversation grows and the game grows and the passion and, and the, the, the application of the game continues to develop because unfortunately I think right now it's still a side thought. I think we'll get into, I'm sure we'll get into my, my ideas of the game, but right now I think that soccer is something that you do. So right now it's, I have soccer practice on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but after that I don't really do much. And I think, my my idea and my drive is to get everybody on that page of soccer is a constant. It was a constant for me growing up and I want it to be a constant for them. I love, uh, you said a word there, Lee, that's um, I think really interesting to me and um, it's the word constant. And I think that with anything, if anyone wants to be, you know, if they want to be a medical doctor, if they want to be a lawyer, if they want to be, you know, the, the best marketing communications person, whatever profession they end up in, nurse, um, that there's something about it that has to be constant, right? And it has to be, for me, I, I would, you know, even substitute a word lifestyle, that it's something that you just do. It's something that's a part of you. It isn't you don't necessarily just put it on a shelf when you leave a training session or, um, you know, uh, I know a number of players that I've worked with that literally the only time they touch a soccer ball was when I was with them, maybe the hour and a half or three hours a week, depending on the club. And, you know, we would see them on the weekend for a match. You can tell who's putting in some extra work and who isn't. And it shouldn't be, you know, maybe work isn't the right word to describe it. It should be, about that love of the game. It should be about joy. It should be about going out and just kicking the ball around with family, friends, whomever, yourself even, um, and just developing this passion, you know, that's inside. And so I wonder for, um, you know, sort of a, an interesting juxtaposition. I have a number of friends that, you know, grew up in the UK and England, and um, you know, just to do this sort of side-by-side -side comparison of cultures, um, you know, of what you grew up in, um, but now, you know, what you're experiencing as a coach. 
it's it's I I so I talk with my wife about this all the time because she's traveled with me over there. She sees the areas that I grew up in, and I mean they're fine areas. And it was just conducive to playing soccer. My friends and I all lived around a central park, and we could always meet there. It was always expected that you would be there. And I think that the the culture of soccer is so heavy that it's almost expected that you play. It's if you played rugby, you played rugby when you weren't playing soccer. Or if you played rugby, you were identified as a rugby player, but everybody else knew that you could play soccer. And when I feel like when that was part of your environment, it's, it's accepted that you play. It's not, it's not, I have practice today, so I'm going to play today. It was getting to school early. So school started at 9.05 and at 7.45, there were 20 of us on the basketball courts playing soccer inside, inside this cage that we played in. And you just played and played until everybody turned up and then the bell went off. And the, I don't see that culture really bring in, and especially the, the demographic that I work with primarily in San Francisco, and you can say what you like about working in a big city and safety and, and being able to get out into public spaces anyway, but the just being able to get out and play consistently and it was accepted that you would go and play. There was never a choice to say, okay, I'm going to go and play on my PlayStation instead because I had a Nintendo 64 that was never connected to the internet. So it was fun if somebody was there, but nobody else was there. So Whilst the environment's slightly different for our players, I think that the games we made from playing as kids were still some of the funniest games I talk about now, how we would find two open garages that they were like public garages that people could, I guess they would rent monthly. Well, if you were lucky, somebody didn't pay their rent opposite the other one. And so you could open them and they were the goals that we would have. So we didn't have to chase the ball down the street or the old changing rooms on our park had different shape for some reason had different shaped windows and they were like a, a perspex glass. So if you hit the window, you got a certain amount of points and it was the first to a certain amount of points. Like we just made games up, but it was all about playing with the ball. And I think that the kids I work with now, if I gave them a ball and took them out to a field, they would make games up. They still kids. They could still, they are still able to, to do the same thing. They can, they'll, still create even funnier games than what we created as kids, but that I don't think they have that culture around them that says you should probably go out and play soccer. Like I said, that's the, the, um, the demographic that I work with. And I know there are plenty of communities that, that have that where they go out and they play consistently and they're in the street and it's street ball and it's, it's full on, but I just don't think there's enough for this. You hear constantly kind of the pay to play is affecting. And I think that people are paying. So therefore they, they play when they're paying as opposed to playing consistently and then going and playing as well. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Aaron, I was going to say to bring you into this, that, I mean, this is something you talk about with your players, even of, um, you know, is there a, a young woman on your team that could lead? you know, something like that, where they, you know, say, hey, uh, you know, gals, we're going to go play futsal tonight, you know, who's in, and it's just six people, seven people, whomever, you know, tend to show up, we'll play, you know, five aside, it doesn't matter, Um, and so, you know, Aaron, like I said, to bring you into this, I mean, I wonder, you know, your experience, but also, you know, to some of the things that Lee was mentioning. 
I think it's it's so fascinating to me to, to listen to you talk about your your background as is growing up as a soccer junkie, you know, to kind of use American term in there. But we do struggle with that in the US. We do struggle with with the mentality that I just want to go and play. And, and this is something that, that I talk to our, our players here all the time is this is soccer's the game. Games are meant to be fun. And when you want to have fun, you play a game. So why do we look at soccer as a endeavor that's only meant to be played when there's a coach, when there's pennies, when there's uh, uh, cones, et cetera, et cetera. And that's some, unfortunately, a lot of the mentality that we have. So when you at the grassroots level, how do you continue to instill that passion, instill that motivation in these young people to recognize that it is a constant, it is a passion. It is something that we should just do because we love to. So, yeah, with my, I think about that because I coach 13 and 14 year old boys and they are um, like, they, they, they're, they're adventurous. They want to play. They, they feel like they are on a pathway to become a pro because that's the, that's what they're playing right now. So that's where they see themselves going. A couple will have a good chance of at least going to college. And so my challenge, and they say, coach, can we practice more? And I said, well, no, we practice three days a week already. Every other week, there's a fourth day why don't you go play? Half of you live near this park. Why don't you go play? And then it's kind of like a, Oh, um, it's almost like I need to put it on team snap. I need to, I need to, I need to schedule somebody to say we are going to be there and then almost not show up or have a parent say, just be there and be responsible because I, it is play. You're so right. Like how many of them play FIFA on the PlayStation? Only a few. And then how many of them watch games at the weekend? Only a few. How many of them have a favorite team? Only a few. And I tell, I give them these individual development plans at the start of the season, and it requires them to identify favorite players and favorite teams and favorite moments from games. And they just, they're, they're blown away by it. So like I went, to the, I went to the World Cup in Russia and uh, I was in, I was at, the, one of the England games and I filmed the goal from behind. I filmed a goal from behind the goal. It was when Harry Kane scored his hat trick and the, like the crowd just goes crazy. And that's the fifth goal of the game. And I show my players that. And I said, this is what soccer means to these people. This is what it means to me. Cause I was going just as crazy as these guys were in the stand. So what, what do you do when someone scores a goal, when your favorite player, when your favorite team, when you win a game on FIFA, winning a game on FIFA against your friend in the same room is one of the best feelings ever. I played against my friend yesterday and I beat him and he was so mad and it's so good. It's so rewarding. I don't know how many of them have that same experience. And I think that comes down to, again, to that culture of that difference that you go play soccer and then you move on to the next thing. And it's not a constant, it's not a life for them. Do you think that, that it's, kind of reflective of just how we are as as a society in general because I mean I think you were talking about when you were a kid and you would go out and you'd create those games I mean we used to do that we used to do that as well as a kid not just around soccer but around American football around basketball around having a frisbee just you know all those different things that you would do and I'm not necessarily sure if if for whatever reason psychologically or, or sociologically it is that it's not as prevalent and you know how do we get back to creating those environments and creating that passion because you know I keep looking at our players and 
you know, I, I want to walk this thin line of making them do something as opposed to them intrinsically having that passion to want to do it. And so chicken and the egg argument, do we make them so they, so they want to do it or do we find the people that have that passion? You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I still am on this lifelong journey to figure out how to motivate and how to encourage but also get people to bring out the passion inside of them, you know? Yeah, completely. And I, um, I listened to a podcast recently. I can't remember the name of it or the guy and I'm doing him a disservice, but it was about creating safe play spaces. And so the, the whole idea that it takes a village to raise a person and in this community on the peninsula in San Francisco, I think it was Menlo park maybe where this guy had, just basically made it his passion and his goal to make the neighborhood a play space. So he knocked down the fences on his backyard. He put in a trampoline. Like he, he did so much to encourage play now as, and of course his kids were, were the, the test subjects, but they would bring their friends over. And then sure enough, slowly people from the community would start to come over. They had a basketball hoop up. So games would start being played and, the environment was conducive to play and kind of going back to my experience of working within San Francisco and think about the culture of a lot of kids being driven to places and not, not having that kind of freedom to figure themselves out. Cause that's where a lot of my games were learned in the mile long walk from home to school because you kind of pick up people along the way. So you play games, you play Kirby, you kick the ball through the hoops in the tree or what have you. And I think with the kids are driving, they're missing those opportunities to, to explore and, to back to that podcast, it was really interesting how he had just set out and people thought he was weird. People accuse him of being odd with children and all of the negative connotations that come with actually trying to do something good for the children. But in the long run, now kids are playing in the community and they have a tight bond and they have better friendships and you're playing with people who live down the road from you. So you can play all afternoon and you don't have to schedule a play day. And I think that that is one way that we can all do better because if we can sit and complain and say, Oh, it's not like it used to be. Yeah. We used to be out all the time. Kids nowadays, it's all changed. But really if we can foster that environment, then I don't see why we can't get the kids to play again. And I think even in San Francisco, we have, this will blow your mind. I think we have close to 20 clubs, clubs, quote unquote clubs um, in a eight by eight mile city. And all of the kids are divided because they play for all different clubs and different teams. Now, what if we got all of them together and said, everybody's going to meet at this field. This is universally accepted at, at 6 p.m. every Sunday afternoon. Everybody's going to meet here and you're going to go play, regardless of your club, regardless of your coach. None of that. But the environment just doesn't allow for it. Whether that's because nobody's ever tried it or nobody ever showed up, so they gave up, I don't know. But there's, that's one of those kind of accepted things, and I don't think we should be accepting that type of thing. Well, you bring up a, um, I think just a really fascinating, you know, I, I would call it sort of a sociological piece of sort of the, the structure of American soccer right now, because there's definitely a turf war and there's probably turf wars in other countries too. So, you know, to be fair, um, but exactly what you said, right? If you have uh, 20 clubs in a eight by eight, um, you know, mile city, uh, it's no, not that drastically different than what I have here you know, in the Pittsburgh area, yet, instead of all of us leading with the idea that, you know, football or soccer really is why we're here, 
that that is what needs to drive everything. It seems that we get into this sort of weird turf war in um you know when <laughs> when players are you know talking to other clubs and um you know sort of this like weird i mean it just it, it just speaks to the mess that is youth you know football here in the country uh, in the states and i've seen it I, I mean it is truly in my experience the worst of the worst when um you know i had a, there's a kid that i coached that um a high school player that i mean he told me the number of clubs that he played for <laughs> I mean, we're talking like four or five over the course of a footballing career. And it, you know, and he just came right out and said it. He said, coach, you know, he goes, I would shop around after every season. And I mean, to me, that's insane, right? Instead of all of us, like, you know, again, it it may sound sort of the football romantic and all of us talking, but coming together to say, no, football should really lead. That is the thing. That is the common thread that brings all of us together why not schedule something, you know, or whatever. So I, I don't know. I, I would love, I mean, I think it's a great idea and, um, you know, I would love to see something like that here locally for me and, um, you know, whatever. So um, yeah, I think it takes a leader. That's, that's what, after kind of numerous conversations like this, that it's got to, it's going to take somebody or some people to collaborate and say, this, this is now accepted. This is now going to be our pickup time whether you're young or old or what have you parents, this is our time. And I think we don't like the schedule. We like the kind of impulsive play idea, but I think from that will grow the passion and the support to, to be free and play. But I think we have to find a middle ground to get there. Yeah. So um, switch gears a little bit. Um, Tell me how you envision the game being played. Uh, What is your philosophy or a style of play that you would like your teams to, uh, to look, to look like when they're out on the pitch? That's a, uh, I don't know, that changes all the time. It changes every game. Um, <laughs> growing up, I remember having, never really having a direction or being told how to play. It was always, here's the game, you get the ball in the goal. Uh, we played a lot of, a lot of crossing, I guess. It's, it, it, if you really wanted to, you could go super traditional English, English style the big guys can can kick the ball forward. They're the big, strong guys. And I was a winger and I was a striker, so I was fast and the ball was always in front of me. So it was a very traditional style of play. Yet when we played on the park and when we played together, it was always with the ball at your feet, which was always interesting. That, and I always see it now in youth games too, where teams will play rondos as warm-ups for the game and then they get in the game and the defender kicks the ball long. So I think maybe the culture is still very similar in that level of soccer, but... For me, it's about loving the game. So I start every season off. I have my own game model that is still still has blank spaces on it that's still being developed, that I'm still working on tweaking after every reflection session that I do. But I share with my players and I ask them, how do you want to play the game? Ultimately, you are the ones on the field, so how do you want to play it? And we go through the phases of the game. We go through each moment. So then I say... This is how you, this is what you believe. This is, most of them are shaped by me anyway over the last couple of years. So they're kind of like my pets. I give them the the stage first and foremost because it matches my model anyway. But I say, okay, so you believe in playing out of the back. Okay, why, why do you want to do that? I challenge them on why all the time. So that then they will believe in what's being asked of them. So they 
they come to the game and they lose their one zero down, but they still believe in what they said. So they have ownership over it. So part of my philosophy is, is about making it about those players because I can be flexible from the sideline in saying the ball's got to go long because we've got to win this game or we're going to continue to play because this team's really good. So we might as well get something out of this. I can be flexible on the sideline. That's not a problem, but my players, I want them to believe in what they're doing and I want them to be shaped in a way that they can go on to college. They can go on to the pros they can go to any other team and be flexible enough to be able to play however they are asked to. So can I create, comfortable players can I create confident players can I create players that actually want to have the ball at their feet and the dramatic change from a player that first joins the team to the end of the season where they go from not wanting the ball because they often receive it in pressure situations where we're trying to play in a certain way into a player at the end of the season who's demanding the ball and wanting to play and wanting to show that they can that they can control the ball so for me, it's about maintaining possession. It's about dominating the game, but dominating in a way that the players are comfortable in doing, that they have fun with the ball, that they, as I said, believe in what they're doing, but they do it to an extent that I feel like I give them an answer. So, for example, we have the ball in on uh, left back has the ball. Number three has the ball. We just played out to him. It's just, just, in, just before the halfway line the way the game model is set up and the way I challenge the players, that player should have two or three options. So he knows what to do. He has a choice to make. <clears throat> and I feel like giving them the answers, regardless of whatever the answer is, depending on the opponent or the team I'm working with, they have an answer. And when you have an answer, it's incredible that you, you know what to do. So think about this science test. You study for the science test, your son, Jason. Now he goes into the test and the, the question is there. He knows the answer. Imagine how good he feels instead of being asked a question and going, oh, I have no idea what to do. Now, <clears throat> the, so then the training environment I create is constant repetition of the game. It's always small-sided games. And then the players become familiar with building the familiar, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the familiarity of the game and training is such that they know how to make those decisions. Now, do they always make the decisions? No, of course, the kids, they're going to mess up. They're going to be under pressure. They're going to be having a bad day or a good day. And they may be playing in a different position. But if I give them the answers early on, then those answers remain true throughout the entire season. So regardless of what happens in the game, they know every time this number three gets the ball, there's an expectation of our team to play in a certain way. And to me, that has been so groundbreaking that when I would take on a team, even three years ago, I would sit there and say, this is how we're going to play. My philosophy is we, we build out the back over and over again and we play out. We, we, we play the ball into the channels, then we're going to cut it back for a tap-in, just like Pep seems to do with all of his teams. <laughs> then I show them all these videos of Pep and the way their team play. But I don't have Raheem Sterling on my team, unfortunately. So how can I ask my players to play that way? Now, yeah, they're a role model and one of my kids has a Sterling on the back of his shirt and he's probably just as fast as Sterling, but nobody else is as fast as him. So he cuts the ball back and there's nobody in the box anyway. So I've got to change my style a little bit here. Yes, I want to dominate the game. Yes, I want to win. Yes, I want, to, I want the players to be great, but we're still playing the game and I want it to be about them as much as possible. Is uh, someone once said, you know, Sergio Aguero is not walking through that door, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just been, and it's it's ever changing. So even to the extent of the way I deliver my practices, that helps me 
shape my philosophy or help me deliver my own philosophy that with the, the um, hashtag soccer chat that happens every Wednesday, it's so good. Normally I'm coaching and this time of the year, I don't, I'm not coaching on Wednesday night. So I actually got to join in on, on Wednesday. So one of the questions was about the stages of a session. So do you go from a warm up to small sided one, small sided two, or is it as the U S soccer is right now, orientation and learning? or whatever you call it in England, it was always um, like, what was it like phase one, phase two, and then into, into a game at the end. And everything's always like a warm up, expanded a little bit more. And then a game, everything finishes with a game. And so remind me to come back to the youth coaches with games too. But um, so I would then say, so my response was that even now over the last two years, that's changed significantly for me because I don't go into it with these progressions and it's more a case of saying, and this is all part of periodization too, of saying we need to achieve a nine out of 10 today. So this needs to be intense. So right now, my, the way the model is, we need to be working on four V fours and here's an area of the field that we're working on, whether it's, you know, defending on the wings or whatever the situation is. So then it's a four V four game with, with certain restrictions or certain rules within the game. So we play that game for however long in the practice so the players learn it and they understand what's going on. Then I need to hit nine out of 10. So how do I hit nine out of 10? I might have to do five rounds of four minutes of 4v4 or whatever it is, but I play the same game. So there's no, there's no explanation of what that is. But I know that my players, that's technically the fitness day. Now they're not running laps or doing sprints or any of that nonsense. They're playing within the the level of the game they're building game familiarity and they're playing at an intensity that is conducive to them playing in the game at the weekend and they also know what they're doing because i've challenged them for the last 40 minutes in how to play that game through our game model and then with my philosophy of them actually playing the game so then my response was simple because twitter characters are, are real short so i can't go on and on and on and on no one's going to read a thread of tweets to yourself but for for having the game at the end of every practice, I disagree with it a lot of the time because then it becomes a reward. And I've done a lot of education for the United Soccer Coaches where I'd go and run the, the small-sided game diplomas and then working for my league in San Francisco running coach education. And people would always say that a game at the end of practice is a reward. That if the, if the players do well, if they do a good job, then they are able to play a game at the end. And it's almost like practice is done when they move into this 20 or 30 minutes of scrimmaging. And it drives me crazy because why are the players there? The players are there to play. We've identified that they don't play enough already. So why are we not having them play in the right situations as much as possible? I watched a coach on the field next to me last night have – you know, a line, classic line of 10 players and it was 1v1 running to an open goal through cones with a ball bouncing through the middle and I think like that's they're having fun and they're competing and that might be fun for a minute or so but you've just spent half an hour doing that how much time have you wasted how many touches on the ball have been missing because these players are not on the ball and of course this is my philosophy of having them on the ball and having them playing the game but if I could that's part of my mission is everybody should be playing the game as much as possible I know uh, Aaron's always interested in sort of the, uh, the sociological and psychological piece of leading players individually, but also leading players as a team. And uh, Aaron, I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh, jump in there. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I love I love doing these podcasts and I love talking to people uh, like yourself that are so engaged in in the technical tactical side of the game and it's so fascinating and and I love it too but so much over the years uh, and it's I've really tried to delve delve into the psychological and not psychological from a sense of of um, the decisions, you know, that, that go into the tactical element, but the psychological of why am I doing this? Why am I here? And, you know, going, touching back on the, to, to the, to the passion piece, you know, I mean, I, I, I want to continue to help create these environments where people just want to be there intrinsically. And so when we train, when we create our training sessions, are we creating them where they are enjoying the opportunity and i think you probably are are right in the sense that when it's 1v1 with 10 people just watching are they enjoying that environment are they enjoy are they wanting to come back the next day are they wanting to go out on their own then um when you're not training you know mm-hmm. and i and, and i feel like at the collegiate level are our players being prepared for that mental grind? And that mental grind becomes a lot easier when you enjoy it, when you find the joy in it. And, you know, again, what are the little elements that you add in to the technical, tactical, and and maybe even the physical side of things? Um, And I think just to, to segue slightly, the physical aspect of it, what you said about the fitness element of, of the sessions is exactly what we do. I mean, I talk to our players all the time and I ask them, how many times have we run sprints? How many times have we done things like that without the ball? And they think, Oh, you know what? We, we don't because everything (laughs) that we do, even here, you know, when our seasons are so short and compact is all game based. And they gain everything that they need out of it. And, um, and I think that's awesome that you continue to prepare the young people in that same way. So I guess, and again, that is fun, right? They Absolutely. would rather play yeah. than run and whatever you want to call it, disguise fitness or whatever, they're gaining what you want to get out of it. And I, so um, can you, do you ever, do you think on those, on those, uh terms as well on how to create it to make it enjoyable but to get something out of it from all the different elements of the game as much as possible yeah and i tie it to my philosophy as much as possible in having the players playing and having them enjoying what they're doing so i will they going back to our kind of pre-season this this is our focus and we'll hold team meetings periodically and say well now we're moving through our phases so we've spent four weeks, six weeks in, in attack. And of course that's still working in defense, but now we're going to flip it. And so we're now we're going to have a team meeting about the way we want to defend. So they have ownership and when they own it, I feel like they're more brought into it. <clears throat> so then, <clears throat> excuse me. So then they now feel like they belong and they have control over what we're working on. And it's not just, a show up and see what coach has got planned for us today or what new game. But I use programs like tactical pad 
and I create what the practice looks like or the situation from the game. And then I send it to them. I have a group text message with my players and I, I send it to them as a GIF and I say, what do you think? Or I use video analysis and I show them, look at how good we were here. Look at how much we need to improve. So if you're in this for the right reasons, which I believe you are because you're on my team, then collectively we're going to improve in this. So they have, they are almost assistant coaches with me because I will use them and say, what do you see here? What do you think here? And of course, I think I already have the answers. And every now and then I get a gem of information from them where I think, huh, I didn't see that. But when I ask them, now their game IQ is improving too. And if, it, and if they miss the point, then the question of guided discovery comes in and I say, well, what about this? What do you see here? And then it shapes the practice anyway to what we were going to work on. But now they are fully brought into what's going on as opposed to showing up, running a couple laps, dribbling through some cones and then playing the game, which many people believe is a soccer practice. And it's just, it's, it's just not. So the psyche side of it is so it's so important i give all my players a nickname and then they all call each other by nicknames that's very much the english side of me everyone has a nickname typically it's a it's a a shorter name with a y on the end so yeah. my nickname growing up was dunny that was it shocking Jason, yeah right Jason, i'm gonna call you broady probably that'd be yep. that street name oh yeah uh, Roger, I don't know about you, man. It's it's, it's a rod. Yeah, it would be a rod. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Based on, that, um, based on that skit, my I have an Aaron in my team, and oh, they call oh, him a rod. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Classic. But that's like, it's fun, and they love it. And then the kid shows up, and everyone's like, "Oh, a a rod's here," and it just. <laughs> It's so valuable that they, uh, I woke up the other day and there was something like 60 messages on my phone because at 10 PM, my phone goes into silent mode, but they decided that someone would send something silly on the phone. And then sure enough, all this flood of messages and they're all calling each other silly names or they're, they're winding each other up and they're saying things. And I look back at it. I just laugh. I'm like, Oh man, what's all these messages about? And I just laugh at it. And that to me is, has been so valuable for our season and, I had a team that fell apart a couple of years ago because I wasn't able to create that environment. The players were all, all understood what was going on. I followed the same steps, but I wasn't able to get them to gel in a way that made it safe for them to call each other names or to call each other nicknames or to poke fun at each other and challenge each other. And it, everything turned into a bit of a fight and it all fell apart. So I've learned a lot on that to really apply myself in terms of this this psychological side and this social aspect because it's, it makes or breaks a team. You, know, you look at the way Liverpool are playing and players in the team have said that they've never played in such a, a joined-up feeling environment, in such a winning mentality, in such an environment that everybody says they are playing for the same reason. Now, if you can get 22 guys to play that way, professional athletes, we should be able to do it with kids who are playing the game because they think they want to be professionals. You know, two things that I took away from what you said in it, it's not rocket science, but it is rocket science mm -hmm. is ownership and relationship. Those yeah. two things are so vital. And everything that you talked about just then was about the ownership of the players and the relationships that coach player relationship and player player relationship. And when all those things come together, then that environment is so healthy for everybody to thrive. And I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create an environment 
that people can, the players can thrive in. And, you know, and I, I tell our, our players all the time that I'm here, this is your program. I'm here to create the environment that you all thrive in. You know, yeah. I, I'm here to guide you. I'm here to help you and mentor you, but it all comes down to your ownership of the program and the, 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 the relationships that you create with each other and with the staff. And so, um, again, it's, it's, it's just like, it's just like coaching in general, like technical tactical stuff. So many people throw out things on, on, on social media and you're like, well, that's pretty basic, but that's what soccer is. It's a basic game. It can be a basic game and we don't need to overcomplicate many aspects of it. And so you think you do it, but you think, well, am I doing the right things? Well, yeah, you're doing the right things if you're doing the right thing, you know? And, and then again, from the psychosocial psych aspect of it, relationships and ownership. But how do you continue to yeah. foster that? Uh, Lee, not bad when you have uh, guys like Bobby Firmino and, um, you know, Mo Salah coming <laughs> off the bench uh, in a Merseyside derby against my Everton squad. Um, I didn't want to bring up Everton. We'll leave that one alone. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just, yeah. I, I get ribbed all the time uh, with the guys. I work with a lot of English guys at the the club I'm working at now, and um, some of them are Liverpool supporters. Um, I actually have a pretty wide range of clubs. The smart ones are. <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, they like to give me a hard time. They're like, of all the clubs, you know, that you could have picked, you picked that one. No. But my team, my team growing up is uh, is Coventry City. Um, we're in the, well, I think we're fifth or sixth right now in League One. We were in the Premier League for a long time, and then it was a nice uh, downward spiral. Right now, we're not even playing in our own stadium because of the dispute between the ownership of the club, which everybody wants to kick them out of ownership of the club but they won't sell the club and then the council of coventry are against them because they're trying to sue them so they won't let them play in the stadium that's in coventry and like this is a for me growing up we used to go over i actually have another picture here too this is our stadium and it's gone now but it when I used to we used to go there with my friends, everybody had a season ticket, and you knew the same people in the stadium. They, they, even the guy in the corner shop outside the stadium, we were 14. He used to give us a bacon roll and a can of beer before every game because that was just like, hey lads, go on, like be good, stand outside the shop, you know, have your can of beer and get in the stadium. And that was every Saturday when they played at home, and that was that was my life. That was my culture. Do I want my 14 year old drinking right now? <laughs> no. And I look back at my, <laughs> I go with my dad and the guy's like, Oh, Hey Lee. And the dad's like, how do you know that guy? But I with my players, if I can get them into this idea of that, the game is, and the environment is not about me and, kind of find this a lot where kids and parents and teams only want to play for a certain coach or if you have some sort of conflict and you can't be there then it's almost world ending that mm -hmm. oh my goodness we can't play because coach isn't there and then I try and set my teams up that they know what they're doing they don't need me there they can almost make their own subs they can almost make their own adjustments on the fly and then to revisit something about the psych side too, you think about um, the UConn basketball coach, uh, Gino. Yeah. He, I remember watching a video of him saying that 
that it's expected or it's a given that you show up and you try that you're given your best. And I can't remember the exact wording of it, but that, that goes without saying, I'm not here to motivate you. I'm here to help you become a better player. And whilst that is true of how I feel about my environment, players still come and they're still in various moods. Sometimes they have a bad day, they have a good day. And sometimes they need a little kick up the butt or a little arm around them. But the expectation is that they come to play. So when they come to play, they are able to, I'm able to challenge them in various ways within our practice. And I think that's really important to set that standard with them that I don't have to expect anything from them. And to go back to sharing the material that I do with them, I say to them, this is our practice for before, whatever it is. And then I tell them today, we need to hit nine out of 10. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be like, whoo, coach, I'm at a nine already. I should probably, I should probably ease off here. It's, this is, this is a challenge for you because it's already accepted that you're going to do the best that you can and you're going to apply yourself in the best way. Now, today, I just need you to get to a nine. And actually, tomorrow, tomorrow is only a six because it's an organizational day. So we have a game on Saturday and we have a Thursday night practice. We're going to take it a little easier because Wednesday was really hard. And then one of the players is like, coach, I really like that today was a little easier. Well, you're still using your brain. You're just not running as hard. So we still get you to the six in another way. But and I feel like the players appreciate knowing what's going on. And it's something I encourage all coaches to do when they talk about their philosophy or their style or their model. I ask everybody, do your players know that? Could your players tell that to the next person? Could they, when I take over a team or a group of players or a new player and I ask them, what did you do when you were in the defensive third defending last year? What were you doing in these moments? What were you doing in these phases of the game? And so many of them can't tell you. They just don't, they, they couldn't tell you one thing. You know, we would defend. Well, great. Thanks very much. <laughs> the game is, it's a simple game, but we have to be a little more complex on that here. So if I can have all of my players leave, knowing that they gave everything they could, and this is a, a recent interview I had on my own podcast where we go through the idea of creating an individual development plan where we write specific goals for them, which includes them having a team and a favorite player, but also what do they want to achieve and then measurables for it. So trying to make objective as opposed to subjective measurables. And it's difficult within the game of soccer because if I have a winger who wants to put 10 crosses into the box every game, that's great. But maybe our game model doesn't work for that. But then also perhaps his role has been a little different in the game where he's playing against a really good player who's preventing crosses. So the recent interview I had was with a guy called Colton Bryant. And he talked about how, if you can have a player walk away from a practice and say that they did give their best, whether I have observed differently, again, going back to their kind of personality and, and whatever mood they may be in, in that day, if they can walk away saying that they did their best and I can give them a little piece of guidance or a little pat on the back or whatever the, my relationship and interaction with them may be, then I feel like that's all we can ask of them. So I can't judge him on achieving eight crosses out of 10 in a game and say that he failed. It's not fair. Maybe the game is, is just not conducive to that in that game. And then maybe there's another game where he got 12. So does that mean that's an average of 10? So he's achieved? It's just, it, it's really difficult to be so objective, in the, in, in, especially in the youth game. So then if, I, if they can leave saying that they've given their best, then I feel like I've done my job because I've inspired them to play, whether they play on the park on the weekend, whether that game or not. But I feel like that has been a challenge for them that has put them into a better place in their soccer career.
tell the, uh, you mentioned your podcast, um, tell the, the audience a little bit about your show and, um, you know, maybe what uh, the, the direction you're trying to take your show in or what it's been about uh, thus far. Sure. Yeah. So I appreciate that. It's uh, heads and volleys. So the idea of it again, that was a game we used to play. I don't know if you've either of you two have ever played heads and volleys. Uh like head catch? No, I don't know. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, I, I don't think I have. Um, oh, man. So, uh, so heads and volleys is, is, a, uh, is, a, is a game we used to play. We have one goal and the group of players. You, play with, you can play with three players. You play with, however, I've played with 20 before. But, so there's a goalie in goal. There are at least two players on the field, and you can only score from a head or a volley. So it's everybody against the goalkeeper. If the goalkeeper catches the ball without it bouncing from a head or a volley, the person who hit the head or the volley goes in goal. You score five goals against them, then they get bums up. So they have to bend over, hold the post, and everyone gets a shot at their butt with the ball. And we played that for hours and hours and hours. And so when I was thinking about even just the name of a podcast, the idea of it came about, again, because I have, I live in this world of sport and youth soccer especially and I speak to so many great people that it was a good idea for me to share my ideas as well as bring people on that I thought could add a significant value to what I'm saying or maybe they do different opinions and but the idea of it was that it's something that I can put out there and 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 people can listen I really appreciate podcasts I, I drive a lot so having that that content in the background is so valuable and I have so much to say and I love talking about it. And if anything, I challenge myself as I talk. So I have this kind of meandering thought process often where I'm then changing my own opinion as I talk. But it came from heads and volleys. It came from the game. And that was the idea of just sharing this, this fundamental idea that the game is the best thing in the world. And, and if we can encourage everybody to appreciate it the same way and to enjoy it the same way I do. And if everybody in the world could play heads and volleys, it's going to be a better place. I have played that. I didn't realize that was what it was called. (laughs) (laughs) So I, a good friend of mine, he, everybody, every coach he talks to, he shares his own, he shares his childhood game. And then he, it's like an information exchange where he gathers their childhood game and then he writes it down. So his big plan is to produce this book after however many years of collecting data of what people played. And I, I could give him 10 games that we played as kids, but heads and volleys was the most significant one. I listen, I, I, I'm old. And so uh, when you were talking about earlier, the Xbox and how you can um, play with other people remotely or through the internet, you know, yeah. when I was a kid in the, in the eighties, we played all those games because we didn't have, I mean, we had, gosh, what was out at that time, Atari. And then, <laughs> NES and Nintendo, you know, and that got, for me, that got really boring really fast. And so we were always playing (laughs) all those different kind of games like that and, uh, and just enjoying that, that opportunity. But listen, I, I have a 13 year old son and, um, and he plays soccer, but just the motivation to get him to get to not want to play FIFA. I mean, he plays FIFA and he loves FIFA and that's his game, but to just to get him outside and to go play real soccer yes. too sometimes yeah. is 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 a challenge but hence the world we live in you know it is and i i have a, a two or a three game limit on games like that and then i'm done with it i'm bored i want to go and do something else maybe that's because of the experience of preferring to play outside as oh, a kid yeah. i wish <clears throat> that we could set that 
set that switch in, in our kids and say, you know, after three games, you're going to have had enough. So we're going to do something else. But you know, it's, it, it, it is again, back to the psych social thing. It is how their brains are wired now. So, you know, it, it just, it's different, you know, and you, you talked earlier about, well, you know, we, we, we don't want to complain about them not going outside and playing without creating the environment. I mean, it, it is, we just have to interact differently with them to just to create a different paradigm to make them want to do it. Cause it's Absolutely. all down to their desire to do it. And it's just going to take a different motivation. And, you know, I think that's what I just love to listen to all the other coaches that we talk to and find out their angle on, on getting the most out of, out of players. And I think it's, uh, I think it's awesome. And it's always fun and always fun conversations. I went to a, I went to a, a speech or a, a seminar at a convention last year and it was about coaching the screen age athlete. And basically, like it or not, phones are here to stay. Phones and the, the technology aspect, they're not going anywhere. So you try and fight it and your players fight back or you embrace it. And things like group messages with my players or using gifts, things like that are talking to them on their level. And I'm able to, to get the same information across that I would have maybe emailed to their parents even just two years ago. Now I can text them and they know it. And parents ask me kind of, so, so what's the focus for this month or for this cycle? I said, your son knows it, ask him. He, he's been part of that choice and it's all on his phone because, hey, that's what, that, that's what he's used to. And we did a sleepaway tournament and we did this team meeting and everybody puts their phone on the table when they come in so it's not a part of it and they know they can get it straight away right afterwards. And when you embrace it like that, remember even go back, remember the flipping bottles I saw a game online and I never played it, but kids want to flip the bottle the whole time. So great. So you're going to play a 4v4 and every time you score a goal, you've got to run to the sideline and flip a bottle until it lands back up. But until it does that, your team is playing three against four. Yeah. So you better do it quickly. And then you embrace it. And now suddenly you're talking on their length. So now they're actually practicing for a reason because when they come to practice, they're going to do it. You do it once or twice and they love it and they want to, they want to bring it. So every now and then I'll bring it back. Say, hey guys, remember that game? Here's, here's the way we go. And they just... It just speaks to them on their level. And I think if we don't do that, it's an ignorance and that's a choice. And I don't think we're serving our players best if we do that. I think that's the, uh, I like that game. the one constant of, uh, you know, coaching that if you're not evolving and developing and, um, you know, uh, just trying to get better at this craft um, that, you know, we talk about the art and science of, uh, of coaching all the time. Um, you know, you're, you're probably falling behind and, it's exactly what you said, Lee. It's about embracing, you know, players where they're at and what they're into. And, um, you know, and if, if we don't, we're going to be like dinosaurs, you know, we'll be, <laughs> the game will pass us by players will pass us by and, uh, you know, we'll be watching from the, uh, from the sidelines. So. Absolutely. Um, Lee, if, uh, if people want to connect with you and follow along the, um, <clears throat> your podcast and, you know, on social media, uh, what are some of the best ways that they can reach out to you? Find me on Twitter. I'm pretty active at Lee Dunn Soccer. And then the same handle for Instagram. My beautiful wife, Jess, is my <laughs> photographer for games too. And I guess my kind of final note will be that often, and I struggle with this early on too, of separating kind of family and soccer. So having brought the two together is so rewarding. I mean, we, we don't have a child. So 
weekends would be me traveling and coaching and Jess staying at home and kind of waiting for me to get home. And then I'm tired and we may go out, we may not. And a weekend is gone. And so for us, it's been a large part of incorporating her. So she has a purpose. She gets to take pictures. So if you check out my Instagram at Leon Saki, just see some, some funny pictures with kids. I coached a bunch of second graders this year. And I think my recent picture was me trying to lift my leg as one of the kids is sat on my leg. And I think the tag is like coach full stop jungle gym, full stop. And so incorporating my wife and everything I do has just been, has been almost revolutionary. You talk about having answers. That's an answer that every coach needs that you don't separate the two. If you can, if you can incorporate them, she loves it. She supports me. She wants to be a part of everything I do. So why not bring her along to the games? And then the parents like her and they don't shout at me as much because my wife says, so I feel bad. <laughs> Excellent tactic. So so yeah, my my Instagram is filled with pictures that she takes. And then my Twitter is at Soccer. You can check me out on my website, leadonsoccer.com. There's a blog on there. I'm working on some material right now that kind of encompasses everything that I've gone through with the A and B license over the last two years. Um, Kind of, I did a quick summary on the cost of everything. with flights from from the bay area out to kansas city six times and the cost of the course and stuff it's just over eleven thousand dollars it costs for the for the a and the b Mm. license with travel with the course cost and everything else that comes along with it and it's over 400 hours that i just put into the last two years so my my current kind of plan is to or my current working is to create some content that people can almost ripped from me the the experience that I've gone through and some of, some of the subjects I'll put out there that people can start taking their own version of those licenses. But I know that that's not feasible for so many people. And I was fortunate enough to have it sponsored a lot of it by my club and by my league. But if you, I mean, how, I don't know how many people can afford 400 hours and $11,000 over two years. It's, it's, it's insane. It's so valuable, but it's insane. So if we can, if I can share that material with people, I'm, I'm all about it. So check me out on leadonsoccer.com. Good stuff. Well, uh, Lee Dunn, thank you so much for uh, coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast and a uh, really enjoyable conversation. Uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. A massive shout out to Lee Dunn for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast with Aaron Rodgers and I. And Lee, a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and wish you all the best. And uh, as we tell all guests that have come on this show, we'd love to have you back on sometime in the future. And we'll do a deep dive on a, a specific topic related to the game that we all love. So we have some big things planned for 2020. And knowing that it is just a few short weeks away, the best way that you can support this show, um, yes, it would be nice if you would all cut us a check for a significant amount of money. However, you're probably not going to do that. But the best way you can support this show is by telling friends in the football world about this podcast. Help us continue to grow listenership. Help us continue to bring new people into what the On the Touchline podcast is all about. I get really passionate about this because this podcast exists to connect you, the listener, to coaches, players, and influencers in our game. Ladies and gentlemen, this is truly our game. 
And what makes the football world so different and unique and special compared to maybe other sporting environments is the willingness for people to engage with one another and to debate, to look at the game from a different angle, to just have conversations about the sport that has absolutely captured the hearts and minds of people listening to this podcast. And your host, hosts, plural, um, truly. So by engaging with the show, you help make the football world just a little bit smaller. And that is absolutely what we want um, for this podcast. All right, guys, it is another two podcast week. You'll get a brand new episode this coming Saturday. So be sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, connect with Aaron and I anytime on Twitter or Instagram at SoccerCoachJB for me and at OhioSoccerCoach for Aaron. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the latest episode of the Omni Touchline podcast. We'll catch you real soon.